Welcome to Disarming Leviathan. My name is Caleb, and this podcast is designed to equip you with tools to missionally engage American Christian nationalists. Today, we're joined by Angela Danker. She is a Lutheran pastor and veteran journalist. She's written for publications like Sports Illustrated, Washington Post, Fortune Magazine. She's also appeared on CNN, BBC, and Sky News and other organizations. Uh, Her book, Red State Christians, is what we're going to be focused on today. And I have loved uh, her book and her approach for uh, those of us that are trying to reach American Christian nationalists as a mission field. One of the most difficult things to do is to show mutual honor and respect, especially when uh, the people that we're talking to are saying things that sound outrageous to us or sound bigoted or just sound uh, way off. Base and uh, Pastor Denker is going to guide us through some ways that we can approach people in our mission field. She's going to also help give a fuller expression and understanding of how American Christian nationalists uh, look all around the country. And so there is some surprising stuff that I learned in this episode and in her book. And I believe that this will be a great gift to you. And so, without further ado, here is my interview with Angela Denker. So, Angela, you wrote uh, Red State Christians, and the the subtitle is A Journey into White Christian Nationalism and the Wreckage It Leaves Behind. Uh, Tell me the story of that book and the title, too. Yeah. So, um, it's gone through quite the evolution. Red State Christians was born, I suppose, in Orange County, California, during the 2016 election when I was working at a church that was Lutheran in name, but really more of an evangelical megachurch in style uh, located right next door to the Nixon Presidential Museum. So kind of the heart of American conservatism. And when I moved back to my hometown of Minneapolis in 2017, I pitched a book about Orange County Christianity, which the title survived as a chapter title. It's called Bibles and Boob Jobs. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, you can relate to that, I'm sure, um, in Phoenix too. Um, But... But yeah, so the the publisher, they really wanted a national look. And at the time, you know, ancient history now, Hillbilly Elegy was really popular. Yeah. <laughs> and so they uh, they thought, well, we want, you know, something that specifically looks at the Christians who made up this coalition. And so at that time, very few people were even talking about Christian nationalism. And it was a genuine exploration for me as well as I began to travel across the country to really understand how deeply rooted Christian nationalism was in telling this political and sociological story. So initially, the subtitle was just understanding the voters who elected Donald Trump. And then, like all of us, I so that book came out in August of 2019. And then I began traveling and doing all this speaking on the book. And then, bam, we're hit with covid few months later. And like all of us, I watched as Christian nationalism impacted those years from 2019 to today, 2023. I had a family member who died of COVID and he was very much influenced by messaging around Christian nationalism when it came to COVID. I live six miles from where George Floyd was killed in May of 2020. And so saw the role of race deeply in Christian nationalism And then I was also serving a rural congregation during the January 6th at the Capitol. And so all three of those things led into now this this new subtitle, uh, Journey into White Christian Nationalism and the Wreckage It Leaves Behind. Because I think many of us 
we, we are living in that wreckage and that wreckage includes our family members and our friends and our loved ones and our churches. And we're looking at how do we build something beautiful and lovely in all of this wreckage and also acknowledge the wreckage. So that's, that's where it came from. And one of the things I love about your, your book and your approach is you very much seek to honor that, which is honorable about Mm -hmm. the people that you're engaging. You also treat the people that you engage with in the book as actual human people, uh, three dimensional characters. (laughs) Tell us about, as you kind of traveled around, uh, America, what did, what did you notice? What surprised you and what did you discover and maybe give us a deeper view or a fuller view? of this group of people that we refer to as American Christian nationalists? Yeah. Um, I think I, I was, you know, a little bit naive when I first began um, just looking at the depth to which this is a theological movement. And I remember probably the most influential interview for me was with a pastor named Dean and Sarah, who was then a member of the Southern Baptist conventions Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And he just straight up said to me in January of 2018, he said, Christian nationalism has become a gospel distortion in the Southern Baptist Convention. And he said, we have so powerfully taught Christian nationalism, by which he meant, you know, we've centered the flag, we've centered defense of America. And he didn't say this part too, but we've centered, you know, white Christian America. We've centered that so strongly that that people in, it, in the churches, they know centrally how important it is to defend America much more than they know the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that truth kind of, I was surprised at the extent to which I found that across America, whether it was, you know, up in rural New England, and I'm at this um, private Catholic college, whether I'm in, you know, the rural Midwest and with farming communities, you know, which is super close to my heart. That's my family. It's my friends, people I grew up with, um, or whether I'm in Orange County or I'm in Florida, just that, that message, that centrality of Christian nationalism to the extent to which it crowds out the story of Jesus was something that I found in two differing extents, I would say everywhere I went. And you're, you mentioned the centering of the flag, right? This, this red, white, and blue old glory, the icon uh, that says so much to um, so many different people. It, it sometimes means different things to different people, of course, right. within America. Uh, but we often see old glory on the platform of our, uh, where we hold church services. And right. there's usually a cross and a flag. Sometimes right. there's um uh, the Christian flag, what's called the Christian flag, right? Uh, which usually is kind of a nice counterbalance, you know, cross in the middle sure. flag on the right and left. This usually, you know, sometimes can be benign. Other times it ends up taking, actually taking part in the worship service itself. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe thinking about a Memorial Day or a Veterans Day mm-hmm. or a Fourth of July service. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the experiences that you had where you're engaging in maybe some sacred space or a worship environment. And then there's America. Yeah. Well, I think when we, when we put the flag at the same level of the cross, what we do is we kind of, we make the flag so holy that it, that it does a couple different things on one level. 
for me, what I saw really powerfully is that it diminished the power of the incarnation itself. And so for us as Christians, such a central part of our faith is this knowledge that God became man and really did live on earth among us and walked. And then Jesus was a real person who lived in a particular place at a particular time. And guess what? You know, that wasn't America. (laughs) You know, that was a particular place in time that had nothing whatsoever to do with the United States of America. And so when we make America such a central part of our Christian faith, it starts to crowd out the real story of Jesus of Nazareth. And um, we lose the historical grounding of, of the incarnation. And then in its place, what we have is sort of this this fictional made up story that has to do with God centering the United States in, in America rather than Israel or Palestine becomes the new Holy land. So for me, again, this is all very theological and some of the work that I think you're wanting to do, and maybe the listeners are wanting to do is to break some of that down again so that we can return to the faith of Jesus and this centering of love and peace and hope and joy that, that many of us first found when we came into churches and we came into Christian communities. So we might see this, this merging of the American Americanism, Mm -hmm. uh, American civic religion with the Christian tradition. We see this maybe in a sanctuary with the flag on the stage, or maybe on 4th of July service Mm -hmm. with, um, What's that stuff called? The fancy the bunting. Bunting, yes, we see it with the bunting and yes. and all that very fancy 18th century decorum. But for many of us, we're also hearing it or experiencing it at dinner tables, at the kids' birthday parties, when we're with family. What are maybe some things that we might want to attune our ears to our loved ones when we hear something? What what would be some ways that we hear uh, that syncretism expressed? Uh, in just normal conversations or tropes or memes or themes that come up frequently? Yeah. uh, Well, I think one of the first ways that I began to re-enter into doing more journalistic writing work after leaving my church in Southern California was during the NFL kneeling protests and Colin Kaepernick. And I think we really saw an example there of here was a Black man who was kneeling in front of the flag. So it it wasn't a violent gesture. It was a gesture of saying, there's something that this flag is standing for that is in contrast with the ideals of this nation, particularly around police killings of African-American men and women. And the reaction, both from Donald Trump and from a lot of American white Christians to that kneeling protest, I think, showed just to the extent to which people started to view the flag as an object of worship so that there is no possible way to critique or criticize America or its government. And of course, that's antithetical to our entire history as Americans who were born in revolution. (laughs) Um, But also, you know, you just begin to see that there's just this acceptance of this sense that, well, of course, America is on the side of God. And of course, God is on the side of America. And when we just sort of blindly accept that, it makes it very difficult to 
to critique, to look at ways for possible improvement, and to also historically understand the truth about our own country when it comes to things like slavery or when it comes to things like mistreatment of marginalized people. And we find that oftentimes in the kitchen on a sign from Hobby Lobby uh-huh. <laughs> uh, in our loved one's house. Um, uh-huh. it's, yeah. uh, I've, I've been in homes where there is a, you know, one of those um, uh, shiplap uh, with like stenciled over it is uh, we stand mm-hmm. for the national anthem yeah. in this house. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's next to the other one that says, you know, it's got the the verse of my people who are called by my name yeah. uh, would repent, I will heal their land. And it's yeah. this, this Americana and the scriptures merged together. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned Orange County Christianity. I think for most of us, when we imagine American Christian nationalists, we're thinking about Cracker Barrel. We're Texas. thinking about uh, <laughs> rural yeah. uh, or adjacent to that, right? Country music, somewhere in that space. Yeah, I love and all one of the things that I very much appreciated about your work right. is that you showed, you, you even mentioned it just a moment ago, there's New England expressions, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then there's Orange County. How, yeah. what, what did you discover about Orange County Christian nationalism? Well, I think even if you look back at some of the key players in Trump's presidency and some of his closest advisors, so many people come out of Southern California and come out of Los Angeles, whether it's, you know, Stephen Miller or Steve Bannon. There's so many ties to Southern California. And it's interesting when I came back here to the Midwest and I remember one morning I'm getting ready for church and one of my parishioners is coming up and talking to me and she says, um, well, I know, you know, you came from California, so I'm sure it was very liberal out there. And I'm like, oh, no, it was not. <laughs> you know, so I think that's that was always one of my goals of in my book was to surprise people and challenge people's assumptions. And I think a lot of people make assumptions about Southern California that aren't true. Yes, California is an overwhelmingly blue state. Yes, California overwhelmingly elects Democrats. However, There's so much money and power in California. I mean, Kevin McCarthy is also a Californian. And so when I came to um, the church that I served in, in Yorba Linda, California, what I really saw was a place that was really steeped in white Christian culture. You know, a lot of the kids go to private Christian schools. There's a huge amount of evangelical mega churches. A lot of people even on my church staff, when I was at a Lutheran church, a lot of our church staff came from the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And some of it is just sort of a, a culture that's taken for granted. You know, there's an expectation that that moms are going to stay home with kids. There's an expectation that you know people are going to look a certain way. You're going to present overwhelmingly feminine or overwhelmingly masculine. So that's where even some of the plastic surgery comes in. And also... There, a lot of it is kind of a facade because it's really expensive to live in Orange County. And so if you're going to try to have a one working parent household because of your traditional cultural or cultural beliefs, a lot of times you're going to end up in a lot of debt. So, yeah, I, I still think it warrants a full book on Orange County Christianity, but we'll get there someday. Yeah, I hope you're able to do it. I know that uh, it's certainly... Uh, helped to shape my understanding of this mission field and the, mm-hmm. the different ways that, that nationalism can be expressed by different people, yeah. depending on their region, their economic status. Uh, well, I'm in Phoenix. Say, oh, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to add that, you know, when a lot of national media started to look at Christian nationalism, I'm, you know, love to pick on the New York Times. They almost look at it as like, we're going to cover, like, we're going to go visit these zoo animals in cages and we're going to look and see these <laughs> crazy right, people. Right. And I just thought it was so it was so poorly done in a lot of cases because they try to just go find the most extreme people they could and almost sort of patronizing coverage. When the reality is this is a well-educated, well-funded, well-resourced movement that is widespread across the United States. And particularly you see in Orange County, this is a movement that has a lot of money and power behind it. And so to cover it as some kind of freak show is to diminish the real power and real deep roots that this movement has in this country. And I think national media has been afraid to really cover that because then they become implicated in it too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're, we're in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we love vacationing in California. Oh yeah. Uh, and there's a, there's a, a theme here, uh, kind of a talk track and it's don't California, my Arizona. <laughs> and it's this, it's feeding into this, uh, this idea, this stereotype that everything in California is a certain way. And, right. you know, we here in Phoenix, we don't want any of that. The irony being that Phoenix, uh, which I was born and raised in, more than 50% of our population moved here <laughs> within the last 30 years. So, wow. you know, you do what you can. Uh, we're talking about American Christian Nationalists as a mission field, you spent time in and among folks in Orange County. What were some of the other places that you went and experiences that that you might share with us just to give us a broader view of this people group? Yeah. Um, well, in the book, I, I really was fortunate to go, you know, especially before COVID, go so many different places. So I went to a few different places in Florida, a few places in Texas, of course, Houston, Dallas, Dallas suburbs, North Dallas suburbs, big place for Christian nationalism, went to the U.S.-Mexico border in El Paso, very powerful trip there. But I think, so I've also spent, I just recently left my pastoral call, but I spent the last three years as solo pastor of a rural congregation in rural Minnesota. And so I, I do live here in Minneapolis, but I would drive an hour west to serve this church. And so we were together through COVID. We were together through George Floyd. We were together through January 6th. And that was just such a powerful experience because I really felt like I got to coexist in what's often considered to be two different Americas, right? That I'm in, you know, this blue, quote unquote, blue city of Minneapolis. I live in Ilhan Omar's congressional district. And then I drove west to McLeod County, where over two thirds of the county voted for Trump in 2020. And my congregation was certainly that way as well. And so I think I really got this opportunity to live out, you know, what it looks like to, to be missionaries to one another, to listen to one another. You know, I learned a lot from my congregation. They learned stuff from me. We grew together. We, I, I had a couple of families leave after, you know, I spoke about George Floyd and racism and the role of clergy protest in that. But that was um, that was really minimal. In an overwhelming sense, we really grew together and learned so much. And especially um, the kids, you know, my confirmation students, my high school students, we had some hard conversations. But we got a chance to really break down those stereotypes that maybe rural or urban people would have about each other, or maybe Republicans and Democrats might have about each other. And that experience in that church 
to me, it gave me hope for the local church because the local church, I mean, this was a place where we had people of different political backgrounds. We had people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, and we were able to center the gospel and to move away from Christian nationalism. And I think that story is so important for us. Um, one of the things that you say in your book is that a, a divided America needs conversations that begin with mutual respect. But Angela, I hate half the stuff that comes out of these people's mouths. What do I, what do, I do? How do I form that posture in my own heart when uh, the people that I want to reach or have this conversation with, I don't respect what they're saying. I, these postures that they're taking, they're, they're outrageous. They're, they're anxious. They're, they're some of them are bigoted. Uh, help me, help pastor me and maybe some of our listeners. How do we form within ourselves the capacity to have conversations that begin with mutual respect? Yeah. I mean, I think it's always first important to say at the outset, not everybody needs to put themselves in the place to have those conversations. So if I'm, you know, a black person, I have different, I don't, who's to go into a place where people are being openly racist towards me. Maybe, you know, that would be much more traumatic for me than I'm coming into this as a white woman, a white middle-class woman. I present in a way in that a lot of people will just assume, you know, I'm with them (laughs) because of how I look or my background. And so I think, you know, first of all, just kind of, it's okay to make sure that you're safe and know who you are and know if it's safe for you to be in that conversation, you don't have to be Jesus. Tell I always think about the story of Jesus sending out the disciples um, to go. And he says, go into everyone's home. Don't take a cloak. But he says, if you're not welcomed, you know, wipe the dust from your feet. Mm-hmm. And so I, I always tell pastors when I talk to pastors about doing this kind of work that know that it's okay for you to wipe the dust off your feet, because I've seen so many pastors and so many good hearted Christians just get so beaten down trying to do this work and feeling so frustrated with why can't I reach my loved ones? Why am I feeling so rejected? So that's the first thing is just being discerning. But I really find a lot of strength and wisdom from the 12 step movement and the sort of paradigm of recovery. And I know we talked about this earlier and I I have uh, my brother-in-law and my brother are both in recovery for substances and Yes, addiction's been a part of my family. And so I've spent a lot of time learning from the 12 steps. And I think it's true in this kind of work as well, in that you can't make somebody change, (laughs) but you can maintain, if this is a person who you love and have, you know, then you can maintain that relationship enough to be there when they are ready to have and to let you in. And I've had that experience, you know, even in my own family where they trusted me to pastor them, even when they were like, oh my gosh, this crazy, you know, liberal who wrote this book. And I don't even call myself liberal, but that would be what they would say. But they then gave me the opportunity to be their pastor on different levels. And um, so I think it is just not forcing the conversation protecting yourself, wiping the dust from your feet when you need to, and also not, you know, putting your pearls before swine. (laughs) Like, don't do it on Facebook. Don't do it on social media. Don't do it with people who are just going to what about you, you know, for the whole time. But there are those people who really want to genuinely have a conversation. And so find that person and pour your your energy into the, the person who really genuinely wants to be present with you. 
Yeah, I love that. Uh, and you, you said something I just want to reiterate. We can't change people's minds. Yeah. But we can create environments in which people feel hospitality. They feel loved, safe, cared for. Yeah. And we can be with people as the spirit changes their minds. Yes. Their yes. That sounded very Lutheran. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tried. <laughs> yeah, I, I serve as a non-denominational Bible church. You know, we, we're, we're very averse to tradition as it turns out. <laughs> Sometimes I, I daydream about being a Lutheran. <laughs> well, we love to, you know, diminish any sort of human potential for doing anything in the Lutheran church. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I also, Angela, I just, I, I've, I've picked this up in your, in your work, in your book, uh, and even in this conversation you have a hope. Uh, you have a Jesus-centered hope that that the people that we're talking about reaching, uh, first of all, are not alien. They're not other. They're us. Right. Uh, right. It's you and me. It's our community. It's us. Uh, but you have a hope that that change can come. Tell me about that. <laughs> give give so, to some of us perhaps who are feeling hopeless. Yeah. Uh, some of what you're feeling. Well, you know, if we look at the most powerful stories of our Christian faith, and of course, first, the story of Jesus himself, you know, Jesus was a victim of capital punishment. Jesus died on the cross. And so the way I sort of theologically frame this sense of hope is the contrast between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. And the way in which the theology of the cross gives me hope is that the theology of the cross reminds me that what the world says is great and success and power. And so we think about Christian political power and this elusive thing that Christians in America have wanted for so long. The theology of the cross says, you know, you should be suspect of that because every single time that Christianity has lined up with worldly power, whether it was ancient Rome and the Crusades, whether it was the Nazi party in Germany and my own, you know, German Lutheran relatives who lined up behind that, it's always led to terrible circumstances. And it's been those people who have been rejected by the world. You know, we, people love to quote Martin Luther King Jr. today, but he was being surveilled by the FBI. He too was assassinated. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was assassinated. Apostle Paul was assassinated. You know, this life of following Jesus, the prosperity gospel has just got it so wrong. And we have created this um, capitalist Christian culture in America of, you know, swag and conferences and Bible studies and all. And I, you know, I've participated in it just as much as anybody else, but I think we really got to question some of that. And so where, where I find the hope is that it's like the theology of the cross reminds me that when it seems the world is rejecting you, when it seems that what you believe in is the minority, <laughs> when it seems like you're losing, that's when Jesus is really most powerfully with you. And I think as white Christians, we haven't had to learn that, but I think if you look at the wisdom of of black Christi- the black church in America, particularly, um, if you look at marginalized Christian movements around the world, they know this stuff, and so we've got to you know take a step back and say what what do we have to learn, and where can we be students from people of other Christian backgrounds? Mm. That's so good. 
Angela, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I think that's an excellent spot for us to land. Where can people find your work? Yeah, so I'm really leaning into Substack right now. I'd love to have you guys in the community over there. Um, it's called I'm Listening. It's just angeladanker.substack.com. I write three times a week. Uh, Sundays, it's more of a Bible-centered post. Tuesdays is sort of general. Sometimes I write about reality TV. <laughs> um, sometimes, you know, regular stuff. Um, and then Fridays, I do a news post. So yeah, come join me on Substack and I'm on Twitter, but it, Twitter's a mess now. So, but yes, Angela underscore Danker, uh, Danker over there and then AngelaDanker.com. Cool. And we'll link to those also in the show notes. And uh, if you do not have a copy yet, make sure you get a copy of Red State Christians, uh, A Journey into White Christian Nationalism. <clears throat> the wreck it leaves behind. Pastor Angela Danker, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.